Well, I want to begin our discussion today with the two verses just prior to what Kevin shared with us. 1 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 2, they say this, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to watch over the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel mourned after the Lord. So a little catch up from our message last week. So after 50,070 men from the town of Beth Shemesh were killed by God in response to how they treated the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is the box that contained the written records of God's words to Israel. After they had been punished for the way that they treated and received it, the Ark was then moved to the town of Kiriath-Jerim. And what this reveals to us in part is that the Ark was not returned to the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was in Shiloh at this time. And a man named Eleazar, who as far as we can tell from the scriptural narratives, was not part of the priestly line of Aaron. He was set apart to watch over the ark while it was there, so he more or less protected it. We're then told that the ark remained there at Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years prior to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, where Kevin began our text today. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant was not brought back to the tabernacle for a very long time. In fact, if we continue in the story, it was King David, after the reign of King Saul, who collected the Ark from Kiriath-Jerim and brought it to Jerusalem. Now, partly this may be because after the death of Eli and his sons, maybe there were no sons in the line of Aaron of appropriate age to take over the officiating of the tabernacle. So it's possible that maybe being too young, there was no one to take over. To my reading, the text of 1 Samuel has told us that for at least 20 years, maybe more, at least the biggest sacrifices of the calendar year, those that were made on Yom Kippur, that required the Ark of the Covenant to be in the Holy of Holies, were not made for at least 20 years, and probably 60 years, because it looks like it was never returned to the tabernacle during the reign of King Saul. And the likelihood of this uh, devaluation of the tabernacle in these days is further suggested by verse 17's revelation that after the death of Eli, Samuel did not go back to Shiloh and live there where he had been living, but instead he moved back to where his family was from, to Ramah. It would appear that God's judgment on the house of Eli for their sins had a quite broad-ranging effect on the religious life of the Israelites. Perhaps this is in part why God had waited so long to judge the priesthood. Maybe this is in part why God gave the priests so long to repent. Once God's judgment on the high priestly family was executed, no Israelite could any longer make sacrifices at least on the Day of Atonement, maybe at all in the tabernacle, for decades. That's a devastating consequence for the people of Israel. And we should remember, even today, when we see God's mercy extended to the wicked, that when God's judgment comes, far more than the wicked are affected by it. We should remember that God's mercy on the wicked is also mercy on the innocent. Because when the wicked fall, the innocent suffer as well. Now, it's unclear, and I don't know if you felt it was unclear when you were hearing the text read, 
But this 20 years, what, what does it mean? It's unclear. Did they, did they, were they mourning after God? Were they repenting during the whole 20 years? Or did it take 20 years before they did it? It's hard to say. It's also unclear as to whether Samuel's gathering of the people in verse 5, if that occurred during those 20 years or if it occurred after those 20 years, based partly on some chronological evidence that's revealed later in 2 Samuel and in 1 Kings. To my reading, the mourning of the people and the gathering that Kevin shared with us, called by Samuel, happened after the ark had been in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. And they apparently were under the thrall of the Philistines for that period of time as well. I also think this helps explain Samuel's sudden emergence. You notice Samuel was a child the last time we saw him, and all of a sudden, he's a man. Well, I think 20 years had passed. But scholars debate that, as I keep saying. They have to. You have to make a living. If you don't debate anything, you're out of a job. Now, I invite you to continue following along with me. I'm going to repeat just a little of what Kevin shared with us, not the whole passage, but this opening passage, because I want you to pay attention to the language. Then Samuel, this is verse 3, 1 Samuel 7, 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Then remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. And he will save you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered to Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now up to this point in the book of 1 Samuel, we've not been told very much about the personal religious lives of the Israelite people. The focus so far has been on the families of Samuel and of Eli. And given what we've read so far, we would have been justified in believing that the Israelites at this time were faithful to God. I mean, so far it looks like the priests were the primary problem. However, the passage we just read reveals that it was not only the priests who were living in rebellion against God. The people of Israel, too, were living in rebellion. How, how do we know? Well, they were worshiping false gods, namely the gods Baal and Astarte. Now, the First Testament is filled with references to the Canaanite god Baal and the Canaanite goddess Astarte, who is sometimes written as Ashtaroth. It's just a different way of saying the same uh, goddess. Now, I want to remind us, we often think today that what a god or an idol was, was just somebody made something and then they thought that was a god and they worshipped that little figurine as though it were a being. But that's not what gods were. That's not what idols were. Idols are symbols. Nobody thought that the little thing they made was the god. The god existed out there. This thing represented the god. It was a way of getting the god's attention. They thought it might be a vessel through which they could gain access to the god so they, they tried to figure out what does a god look like and what kind of things do gods like. And then they would make themselves an idol that looked like the god and then they would try to surround it with things they thought might impress that god. And they thought through this, these efforts they could influence the god. 
and get him to do what they wanted or to come where they wanted him or her to come. So that's what idolatry was. So the Israelites, Samuel's not simply saying, you've got a lot of little figurines in your house, just get rid of them. That's, it, he's saying way more than that. So Baal was an idea. He was said to control a certain aspect of the world. This is what, um, what's his name, Richard Wilkinson says in his book, The Complete Gods and Goddesses of Ancient Egypt. He says, Baal was the West Semitic storm god and the centrally important deity of the Canaanites. He was believed to be active in storms. He was known as rider of the clouds and lord of heaven and earth. And he also controlled the earth's fertility. And the reign of Baal was seen as a source of fertility and it was associated with reproductive fluid. Astarte was a female fertility goddess. She was one of several who had to be fertilized by Baal's reigns if earthly fertility were to continue. So when do you think you would worship these gods? Well, if you wanted to have a baby, you would because they're the god and goddess of fertility. But also if you wanted rain to come so your crops could grow, that's when you would worship them. And that's why Israel was worshiping them. These were extremely important deities in the nations surrounding Israel. So they would have witnessed the worship of these deities among their near neighbors. So they would have known how they were worshipped. Baal, in fact, was eventually seen as the highest of all gods. And later, when the Greeks encountered him, they associated him with Zeus. Second, as we discussed in previous sermons, <clears throat> the land of Israel was quite arid. Jerusalem at this time, as far as we can tell, received only 25 inches of rain per year. So worshiping Baal and Astarte was a ritualized way of praying for rain. Even more, the scriptural evidence suggests that the worship of Baal, because of his association with fertility, involved a lot of sensual and fleshly indulgences. It was quite a uh, uh, fleshly endeavor to worship this god and goddess, the belief was that if you did what you wanted them to do, then they would become amorous and do it themselves and you'd get crops. So the worship of those deities was pleasurable from a fleshly perspective, and that was enticing to the Israelites, at least according to Jeremiah and some of the other prophets. As I discussed in the second sermon I preached at the Presbyterian Church in August, now if the Israelites had simply said, you know, we're done with the God of Abraham, we're through with him. We like Baal better. We're just going to become Baal worshippers. Then when the prophets came and said, you're idolaters, they all would have said, yeah, we are. But everybody was surprised when the prophets came and told them that they were idolaters. Nobody believed that. For most of biblical history, the Israelites did not seem to have believed they had rejected the one true God. Instead, they appear to have conflated God with Baal. As if the two were related, or maybe those were just two different names for the same being. And once you believe that, it becomes quite easy to just incorporate some of the more desirable aspects of worshipping the one God in your worship of the other. I mean, they're the same anyway, right? In verses 3 and 4 of our text, Samuel was calling the people of Israel to repent. Not just by getting rid of these little things, but by disentangling their worship of the God of Israel from their worship of Baal. And in response to Samuel's challenge, the people of Israel committed to doing this. And so Samuel called them together at a town called Mizpah, 
Now, we don't know why he gathered them there. We do know that that is where all the tribes of Israel met in the book of Judges to decide they were going to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. So it's not an insignificant city, but we're not quite sure why Samuel chose that one. Maybe you have some ideas. In any case, at Mizpah, Samuel led the Israelites in a liturgy of repentance. We've already been told that the Lord spoke regularly with Samuel, so it's probably not surprising that the people wanted Samuel to pray for them. But Samuel only agreed to do it. You notice the language. I slowed down at it. He only agreed to pray for them if they were truly repentant. And as a sign of their repentance, they poured out water before the Lord. Now, this is significant for two reasons. First, water is very precious. We talked about the aridness of Israel. So wasting this was not something you did idly. But also, they prayed to Baal for water. So you might say the water they had collected, they had done through the worship of Baal. So they were, in some ways, giving back what they had gained through their sin. In addition to this, the people fasted. Now, fasting in the First Testament was most often done to avert destruction. So I'm guessing that the Philistines were heavy upon them at this time. Fasting was a way for the people to demonstrate their desperation before God and their earnestness in turning away from their sins. In the covenant of Sinai, fasting was required in preparation for the high holy days, all of which were associated with the forgiveness of sin. So they did not eat or drink on that day as well, and then they confessed publicly their wrongs. That is, they confessed that by combining the worship of Baal and the God of Israel, they had broken their covenant with God and they had sinned against him. And when it says that Samuel judged them or led them at Mizpah, My sense is that Samuel took the responsibility of leading the people spiritually. Samuel doesn't fight with the people as some of the judges did. He becomes more of a spiritual, maybe even an administrative leader, but I think primarily spiritual. In other words, Samuel helped them to discern right from wrong. Samuel's primary role in Israel was to help them distinguish the worship of the God of Israel from the worship of Baal. And without Samuel, it would have been near impossible for them to know which was which. We remember that Samuel had been brought up by Eli in the tabernacle and had even slept near the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the written record of God's words had been kept. Without Samuel's leadership, the people could have been sorry for their sins. They could have been remorseful. They could have known that something was wrong, but they could never have repented. Because in order to repent, you have to know where you went wrong and have some idea of what it would look like to go right. So repentance was impossible for them without Samuel. The text of 1 Samuel is telling us that Samuel began to provide this discernment to Israel, beginning at Mizpah. However, no sooner had the Israelites made this commitment and began the process of leaving what needed to be corrected from Sam, or of learning what needed to be corrected from Samuel, that the Philistines saw the gathering, they assumed the Israelites were planning for an attack, and so they rallied their forces for battle. So the Israelites became afraid, and they asked Samuel again to pray for them. And Samuel responded first by making a sacrifice. As we've discussed before, Samuel's not a priest. His family were Levites, so they served at the tabernacle, but they were not priests. And since Samuel is so devoted to the covenant of Sinai, I very much doubt he was breaking it by offering a sacrifice for sin. I don't think that's what it was. The English translation of 1 Samuel says that Samuel made a whole burnt offering to the Lord. In the case that such an offering was made in the tabernacle, the Hebrew would call that type of offering an olah korban, 
That's what it would be called. A whole offering. Or an offering of rising up. However, the Hebrew text of 1 Samuel does not say that Samuel made that kind of an offering. Samuel's offering was called an olah khalil. And I'm just revealing to you the difference between them. The Hebrew word for offering, korban, is not there. So Samuel's not making a sin sacrifice here, and he's not making a tabernacle-type sacrifice. Samuel is slaughtering an animal and burning the whole thing on the altar. We see Abraham do this, Noah did this, Abraham did it, David will do it later in the story. Samuel was just making a, an, he's sacrificing an animal, most likely as a sign of Israel's desire to return to God and to his way. But outside of the tabernacle, this would have had no cultic significance. Normally, when animals were sacrificed outside of the tabernacle, they're simply eaten. And they were allowed to sacrifice animals outside the tabernacle and then eat them. It's permitted by the covenant of Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is what it says in verses 13 to 15. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings, those olah korban, in any cultic place that you see, but only in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do everything that I command you. Verse 15. However, you may slaughter, that's the same word as sacrifice in Hebrew, and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. The unclean person and the clean person alike may eat it, as the gazelle and the deer both eat. So you could make sacrifices outside of the tabernacle. They just weren't sin sacrifices. They weren't cultic sacrifices. The only thing unusual about Samuel's is that he burnt up the whole thing on the altar, which is usually only done in the tabernacle. Usually they would eat the meat. But Samuel's in an unusual circumstance. The people are fasting, right? So they're not going to eat this animal. So he slaughtered it and left it on the fire and burnt the whole thing up. He gave it all to God. It's a sign of their fasting, of their repentance, of their refusal to eat what they're allowed to eat. So not for sin, but still very important. And the Lord heard Samuel's prayer along with the people's repentance. God responded with a loud noise from the heavens. And I love the two Hebrew words here. Uh, The one is for thunder, usually used for thunder. The other is just for a really loud sound. Could be a voice, anything else. But the two are brought together. And I don't know what it sounded like, but I would have liked to hear it. Because whatever it was, it sent the Philistines into a panic. And the Lord's response and the Philistines' fright were so timed that it emboldened the Israelites and they routed the Philistines and chased them back into their territory. And then the text tells us that throughout the days of Samuel's leadership, the Philistines were held to their territory. They did not expand into Israel anymore and they lived along the Mediterranean coast. And even more than that, the rest of the Canaanites heard about this and they stayed at peace with Israel during Samuel's time of leading. That won't end until they choose a king. It will end with Saul. It will end with Saul. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before him, Samuel proceeded to build an altar to the Lord. Now, this is not an altar for sin sacrifices like you'd see in the tabernacle. It's just an altar for the sacrificing of animals to eat them. But the reason it says it's for the Lord is because Samuel dedicated this altar to never be used for pagan worship. So that is the text. And my hope is that that discussion has helped you to understand the text. That is always the first goal. But I want to spend the remainder of our time considering what we today might learn from the passage. And I would like to suggest two applications. The first is this. It's much easier to pollute the worship of God 
than it is to cleanse it. The process of blending religious practices and religious beliefs is easy. There's no challenge to it. It almost happens naturally. The process of trying to keep worship pure is very difficult. One might even say that blending will always happen unless somebody is watching the doctrine. And yet the God of Scripture demands that those who wish to follow him not blend his teachings with the teachings of other gods and other traditions. Old and New Testament, we are told the same thing by God. The first is in the law, the second is in the book of Revelation. Do not add to what I've said, do not take away from what I've said. In the book of Revelation, it says anyone who adds to the words of this prophecy, the plagues written here will be added to him or to her. Anyone who takes away, the plagues will be added to them. So God is very, very specific that he has not missed anything. That's what God's saying. I didn't forget anything. I didn't leave out anything. There was nothing that other people have been told that you have not been told that you might learn from them. I said it all. So don't change it. Don't lose it. Obey it. He says it over and over again. But that takes a lot of effort. Part of the reason that we struggle with this, and Israel did, is just sheer laziness. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to become an expert in what God has said through his prophets and apostles, and most people just don't want to do it. This is in part why we've taken to hiring professionals. When you don't want to do something, you hire a professional. And that's mostly what the people of God has done. They've hired professionals to study the scripture and make it their life's work. And in ideal situations, we would expect those people to summarize the requirements of God for those of us who don't want to study them ourselves. Those were supposed to be the priests in Samuel's day. They were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. And they're pastors and professors for us today. But what if folks like Eli and his sons arise? What if those who are tasked with studying what God has said and relaying what they've learned to God's people are lazy? What if they don't bother reading it? What if they just tell you what they think? Or even worse, what if they lie about what God said in order to twist God's word to their own advantage, which is what Eli's sons did? How would the people of God know that they had been led into rebellion? Well, this is in part why God spoke to Samuel. And why God sends prophets in every generation. Because the priests in Samuel's day had misrepresented the word of God to the people. And as a result, Israel had fallen into rebellion against God. Now it seems clear in Samuel that God blames the priests primarily. Because it was Eli and his sons who were executed. But everybody was suffering for it. The rebellion had become systemic. So God raised up Samuel to do what the priests had failed to do, to become a judge who would help the people of Israel purify what had become polluted. Samuel would help the people to disentangle their worship of Baal from their worship of God so that they might be a faithful people. Those who have walked in the footsteps of Eli and his sons, they've done their work in our day as well. The worship of God today has become blended with the practices and beliefs of other religions and strange beliefs and philosophies, you might say that for some, we've done nothing but blend it. 
The Christian churches today are full of idols, maybe not little statuettes, but full of foreign ideas that are worshipped in the name of God. And throughout Christian history, this can be seen because God has raised up prophets and saints all through history, calling the church. Martin Luther, we're going to celebrate him again on October 31st. He was one more recently who did this. Just as Baal was worshipped in the name of the God of Israel in Samuel's day, so many of us who claim to follow Jesus have conflated the worship of God with the worship of false gods in Jesus' name. This became so heavy on me that last winter I did a preaching series called The Gods of the West. And in that series I suggested that Christianity has conflated the worship of Jesus with the worship of the gods of nation, sex, religion, nature, science, medicine, self, good works, love, and family. How has this happened? Well, there's nothing new under the sun. It always happens the same. As in the days of Samuel, some of it has happened by laziness. Some have wanted to lead God's people in discipleship without becoming students of God's word. Some of it has happened by ambition. Some have simply wanted to be in charge because they wanted to do something big for God and they wanted to be part of the story of salvation and mean something to people's lives. So they chase their ambitions. Some of it has happened by shame. Some have come into leadership because they sinned quite a lot in their past and they wanted to make up for it. But they never truly had the gifts or the call to become a leader of God's people. Some of it's happened by lust. And I've met some of these folks. Some have just wanted to change the teachings of the church so that their sins were no longer sins. The list could go on. In short, some of those who have taken up the responsibility to help God's people discern between right and wrong by virtue of the study of God's word have done this poorly, deceitfully, or not at all. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm praying that God would raise up Samuels to help us. That is to raise up folks who will sacrifice their lives to become competent students of the word and competent aides to the church. But also, I'm praying, that the people of God would learn from such folks with the goal of becoming competent readers and interpreters of the scriptures themselves. Just like the people of Israel were at fault for allowing themselves to be misled, so too are the people of God today. I believe we're in judgment now, and I don't think you have to look around much to, to guess that things are going dramatically wrong in our world. But I believe we're in judgment now because we have listened to too many supposed experts and too many scholars and too many theologians and too many pastors who have lied to us in Jesus' name. I hope you're praying with me that God would raise up students the like of Samuel to help us to remember what God requires of us. And I'll make this second application brief. I'd like to suggest this. God did not hear Samuel's prayer because Samuel prayed it. God heard Samuel's prayer because the people had committed themselves to changing their worship. It was the people who poured out the water that they had prayed to Baal to provide to them. It was the people who fasted before the Lord. And it was the people who repented of their sins. They didn't blame the priests for their rebellions. They didn't claim it was the sins of others. In fact, the people said, we have sinned, right? They never mentioned Eli and his sons. 
If the people of Israel had been stronger in their commitment to God, the priests would never have been able to mislead them in the first place. The people of Israel owned their sins. They confessed their wrongs. They committed themselves to becoming students of the written words of God, and they were willing to start over completely. They poured out the water of Baal. They poured out what they had gained from their sins. And they started again with God. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who was rich. And if he was young and rich, he inherited it. And we don't know how his family built that wealth. But he didn't earn it. That's not how it worked in the ancient world. And he came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do? Jesus said, obey the covenant. He said, I've done that. And Jesus said, you have to give away everything. Now, not because rich people won't enter the kingdom of heaven, but because apparently his wealth had been gained through sin. Let me suggest that until the people of God return to faithfulness to what the scriptures reveal about God and God's will for us, God will not hear our prayers. We can try to find the holiest and most sanctified people in the world to pray for us, but they cannot repent for us. Repentance is the responsibility of each person who finds themselves in rebellion. And how will we know if we're in rebellion? To do this, we will have to become experts in God's words. Students of all that God's prophets and apostles have preserved for us. We can't repent until we do that. Because until we do that, we will not know if we have gone wrong. Only then will we know if we've sinned. Until that day, we will be blind. As Israel was blind under the leadership of Eli and his sons. Might I challenge each person who truly wishes to encounter God and to walk in faithfulness to Jesus to find out for yourselves what God requires of you. By reading his word and committing your whole heart, soul, and strength to believing what you learn. If you need help understanding what you read, I'd love to help you. But as you know, I can't read the scriptures for you and you can't read them for me. And I can't study the word of God for you. And you can't study it for me. And I can't believe the word of God for you. And you can't believe it for me. May those who wish to follow God go to the fount of living water where he's revealed himself to us. And may we stop relying solely on the integrity and truthfulness of those who claim to speak to us on God's behalf. Don't Google to find someone who agrees with you. Just open the Bible. And it takes a long time. It's a big book. But you know what? God spoke to these people. It's got to be worth the effort. It's got to be at least worth the effort it was to read Harry Potter. Wouldn't you say? It's got to be at least worth the effort of watching your favorite show and binging it hours and hours and hours every night. It's got to be at least worth the effort it is to learn a musical instrument. It's got to at least be worth what it took you to learn how to golf. It has to at least be worth that. Your life and mine depends on it. Your life and mine depends on it. May God add his blessing to his word.